for our text this morning. I'm reading from the English Standard Version of God's Word. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. May God bless the reading, hearing, believing, and obeying of his holy word. It's interesting, we're turning to a book we call an epistle. An epistle is just a fancy term for a letter. And it's been the case that in the history of the world, many letters have had a tremendous impact. If you search the web for famous letters of history, uh, some people have tried to compile a list. I saw one list that had an obvious bias to the United States. It said uh, one of the letters that changed the world was the one from a little girl to Abraham Lincoln suggesting that he grow a beard. Don't know if that changed the world, but it sure changed Lincoln and maybe that's what helped get him elected. I don't know. Um, There was the letter in that list from George Washington uh, to one of his uh, uh, men saying, we need help, create a system of spies. And people thought that system of spies helped win the Revolutionary War. That didn't come to my mind right away. There's a letter that I think is significant from Albert Einstein uh, in the late uh, 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 30s or perhaps uh, Uh, right around 40, as the World War II broke out, he tried to alert uh, President Truman, so it would be the 40s, about the development of nuclear uh, weaponry. And it was a letter from Albert Einstein to Truman that got the Americans getting into gear and and brought about the Manhattan Project. That's very significant. We could go on. There's Martin Luther King's 1963 letter from a Birmingham jail that so greatly helped the civil rights movement in our country. That list, as I said, was biased towards the United States in recent history. And obviously, the most glaring problem of that list is what? Letters that change the course of history? Hello? What about letters of the New Testament? The Bible, after the four Gospels and the historical book of Acts, comes the letter of Paul to the Romans. Two letters of Paul that we have to the Corinthians. And on through of the New Testament books, all those letters have changed the world. Let me ask what you might be asking this morning. Second Corinthians. We looked at first Corinthians in years past. Second Corinthians. Why did Paul need to write a second letter to the same church? He wrote it not only for them, but for us. And in fact, as we'll see, he wrote at least four letters to the church in Corinth. Two that we don't have any longer, although elements of the third one might be included in this one. But uh, why a second letter for a church? I mean, there's so many things to happen. Well, for very good reason. God's work in Corinth was ongoing and God inspired his apostle to write. One of the impetus, uh, one of the, the events that triggered the writing of this letter is, of course, Paul's change of plans. You see that uh, at the beginning of chapter 2. I made up my mind not to make another painful visit for you. He's, he's changed his plans. He wasn't coming right away. 
And so he writes to them. Now, today, when we change our plans, all we have to do is pull out our smartphone and send someone a text. I am running late. And then they send the reply, if you were running, you wouldn't be late. We can communicate very quickly if there's a change in plans. But that's not the only thing Paul's doing. That was part of the reason he was writing, to explain his behavior and his itinerary and how he operated. And and the true nature of ministry, that's a significant portion here. But we see here that Paul writes to the Christians in Corinth, and we'll have to remember what Corinth was like, because there was work to be done there. As commentator George Guthrie says, the words of 2 Corinthians embody a pastoral strategy that seeks to draw a wandering congregation close, close to their apostle and his mission, and thus close to the true gospel and the true Christ. A wandering congregation? Yes. One letter did not fix the church in Corinth. And it's an ongoing work nevertheless. So Paul writes, he's trying to to fix their problems, to open their eyes, to protect them, and to defend his ministry as an apostle. All these things come out in this very personal and at times painful letter of Paul to an ancient church and to us. Kent Hughes has said, this book, this letter, is about the nature of the gospel and authentic ministry. Those who really care about the gospel and care for souls, he says, will find 2 Corinthians captivating. It doesn't get enough attention, I think, in the modern church. It's worthy of our attention, at least for several weeks, as we venture into it and make application. We didn't pick it because we thought our church was wandering, but we, like the Corinthians, are work in progress. And in these days of of trouble and tensions even within Christendom. Who's leading properly and which leaders do you follow? Which voices influence you and your thinking? We need 2 Corinthians. Because Christians today, even as they were in Corinth, are too easily persuaded by those who package their their content uh, in fancy garb. We need to be guarded and attend to those who speak on behalf of the Lord and the power of his spirit. So this is a very relevant book for our days, and it will be a delightful summer looking at 2 Corinthians with you. This morning, to get us launched, I want to just look at three things. I want to look at the man, and I want to look at the the recipients of the letter, and then his greeting or his prayer. I want to look first at Paul the Apostle and highlight his apostolic authority. Who is this Paul? Uh, we, we know if we've read the, uh, the Gospels that uh, uh, he was a persecutor of the church. I've read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and I think Jesus only called 12 men to be apostles. And it doesn't mention Paul in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Who was he? Well, first, by background, his name had been Saul of Tarsus. And Tarsus was a significant city in Cilicia. And it was a great center of learning. And Paul was first and foremost a man of the Roman Empire, a a man of the Greco-Roman culture of his day. He was a citizen of Rome. 
That's no small thing in the ancient world. As the empire expanded, not everybody got citizenship. Paul was a citizen. And he was a well-educated man. He was in graduate school, if you will, studying Judaism, of all things, under one of the top names in the world when he was converted. So the first thing we need to point out is his life in the past that laid a foundation to who he is. He's also a Jewish man. Those who served the Lord were both Jews and Gentiles. The original 12 apostles were all Jewish men. Paul is a Jewish man. He understood Judaism and later on would make his boast of how immersed he was. Take a peek with me at 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 22, where Paul, uh, he's almost embarrassed that he has to bring it up his, uh, in his defense as he's going to attack those who are attacking him. Uh, in the middle of verse 21, but whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I am speaking as a fool. I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the offspring of Abraham? So am I. He goes on and he talks about his personal life. Paul was a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee amongst his people. He knows Judaism inside and out. But it's interesting, even as he interacts with these Corinthians, that when he was there, according to the history in the book of Acts, it was Jews that primarily opposed him when he visited Corinth. They, they reported him to the authorities. We'll get to these episodes in, in due time. And they'd report him, and, and thankfully the, the authorities didn't buy all that the Jewish leaders were telling him. But twice, the opposition arose from Jews in Corinth, and one resulted in Paul getting run out of town on the lamb in danger for his life. So Paul... He was a man of the empire. He was a Jewish man, but most importantly, he was Christ's man. According to Acts chapter 9, you see his conversion story told. He was on the way to Damascus to persecute Christians, and he stopped in his tracks by a blinding light. He struck blind, and, and the Lord Jesus Christ makes himself known to him. And he tells Paul what to do, go to this village and seek out a man named Ananias. And this man named Ananias was instructed uh, what to say to Paul, or Saul, before he took on the name Paul. And at his conversion, this is what the Lord said to Ananias. The Lord said to him, go, for he, Paul, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much, how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. From the very day of Paul's conversion, he knew two things, that he was called of Christ to a very special ministry, but he was also called to much suffering. Good thing that's just Paul, right? Uh, regular Christians, we don't have to suffer, do we? There's, there's a theology within Christianity that's summarized by the theology of the cross. The Son of Man, the Son of God himself suffered to accomplish God's will in the world. Are the servants greater than the master? 
This is who Paul is. Well, let's probe further. What kind of apostle? He wasn't one of the original 12, but he says here in the opening of this letter to the Corinthians, this second letter to the Corinthians, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. He's kind of doubling down there. He says, I am an apostle. I'm one of Christ's apostles, and I am such by the will of God. It's interesting there that when he says an apostle of Christ Jesus, he puts the title Messiah in front of Jesus. Usually we see it in Paul's writing, Jesus Christ. Here he flips it. Why would he flip it? Why would he put the the Hebrew into Greek word for Messiah, Christ? Why would he put emphasis on that as he writes to Corinth, who, by the way, were being troubled by Jewish Christian teachers? who claimed to be more Jewish and Christian than Paul. Paul's foreshadowing that his office is from the Messiah, the Christ. Very subtle, just that change of word order that we see. So he acknowledges he is an apostle of Christ by the will of God. He'll make reference to that by God's will, his special, unique calling to be an apostle. Second Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, he said, we will not boast beyond limits, but will boast only with regard to the area of influence God assigned to us. He knew he was on mission by the will of God as an apostle of God. So although he wasn't one of the original 12, he was called by Jesus, sent by Jesus, by the will of God. And he wasn't necessarily like those super apostles that we'll learn about in Corinth. He wasn't a fancy orator, and he had no handsome, dashing looks to gather a crowd just by his face. He was an apostle because of the content of his message and the one who sent him. Kind of reminds us of how the Lord works. God looks on the heart, not on the externals. Of course, he's an apostle here, and that's emphasized here. And he mentions that he's also writing, and Timothy, our brother, Timothy was not an apostle. And you know, the, even today, the word apostle, that label, that title gets thrown about by some traditions, and I don't think it's appropriate. The Lord picks whom he will send and commissions those in his church who will carry that title. So this is the kind of apostle Paul is. He understands his particular calling from God. Uh, George Guthrie says further, the elements that shape this letter openly reveal a man who understands his primary orientation and loyalties to be otherworldly. That was an interesting phrase when I read it, and I think Guthrie's quoting some other older theologian. The apostle Paul, He had this otherworldliness about him. He would go to Corinth, but he wouldn't try to keep pace with Corinthian culture as he tried to establish his ministry. I I had a phase. I I wondered to be effective in the 90s or the 2000s. You know, do do you have to be a hipster? Do I wear a turtleneck? Do I get a tattoo? What what, what do we need to, to be present in our culture? The Lord got me through all those little questions. Paul is true to himself, and he has this otherworldly quality. 
which really all Christians could have more of. You think of what Paul wrote to the Colossians. Did he not say something about think on things above? Walk in the light. He didn't mean just under street lights. He meant in the light of God, how God makes known to us truth from above. And we walk differently in this world if we're believers. It's interesting. We'll see what kind of apostle Paul is. One of the great themes of this book that we're beginning is that God's power is revealed in his people primarily through their weakness. Paul will boast about his weakness. He will show by his own life and testimony that the power of God is brought to bear not by making us strong, but through our weakness, showing God's strength. That should give all of us ordinary folks some encouragement. When God's at work in us, it doesn't turn us into superheroes. But his power works in our weakness nonetheless. Let the world marginalize the Christian. Let the world mock the one who preaches from the Bible in the year 2021. In my weakness, in this earthen vessel, in this jar of clay, we have a treasure and a power. It made Paul tick. It's within us. The Holy Spirit is within us. The power of God is within us. So that's the man and that's his apostle. What's his second letter? Again, just by recap, Paul had visited the the city of Corinth at first in the early 50s AD, whether it was 50, 51, 52. uh, We have to be flexible. We don't know explicitly. And his relationship with them through the writing of this letter covers at least seven years. It's a long standing relationship with this particular local church. He wrote a total of four letters, two that we have in scripture, two that are lost to us that God evidently didn't want in scripture. And he writes here to explain his change of plans to defend his ministry and to defend the church from false teachers and to encourage the church to continue to pursue godliness and holiness as he did in his first letter. There's a contrast here with Corinthians. If you're familiar with Paul's more famous letter, the letter to the Romans, I think it was C.K. Barrett said, if Romans gives us the most systematic presentation of Paul's theology, it is nevertheless, he says, from the Corinthian epistles that we gain the most complete and many-sided picture of how Paul believed his theological convictions should be expressed in the life of the local church. It's not quite a case study, but you've got Romans and it's beautiful, systematic, theological expression from chapter one to the end. And second Corinthians is is more like a living interaction with the people of God as Paul brings those convictions to bear on the life of the church. And in this letter, we will see different theological discussions of suffering and glory. We will see Paul talk about what it is to dwell on earth and what will be our dwelling in heaven talk about the end times he'll talk about Christology he'll talk about trust and authority and apostleship interestingly enough suffering is one of the primary topics that he addresses theologically and he shares personally 
You'll see it in chapter 4, chapter 6, chapter 11. There's much to be said to the church in Corinth and much for us to gain. Secondly, what do we know about the church in Corinth? What do we know about this church in Corinth? It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is at Corinth. Let's talk about that. The church. And maybe step back. What is a church? It's an interesting word. It's a Bible word. It's a church word. We don't use it in other contexts. You might use the word fellowship when you go play golf. Fellowship works here. But church is, is us. And there are different types of churches in the world. It comes really out of that Greek word ekklesia. And you can hear almost the K sound or kirk or church follows into the English language from that word. Ekklesia means the called out ones. Okay, does that help? Yes, the called out ones. Those who are called to God, called to Christ, out of the world into the kingdom of God. Remember, Jesus talked about that beginning of Mark's gospel. Uh, Behold, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. Jesus says, follow me. The kingdom of God is here. He calls people out of the world and into the kingdom. And so this group that gathers, this, these Jesus followers, us, we're called out ones. Meaning we've signed up for the kingdom and our relationship with the world has to be changed now. We're not what we once were. Paul will write in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. That's what a church is. The church, the, the assembly is another translation. Well, they're assembled here and not there because you've been called from there to here for purpose, for a reason. So Paul writes to these Corinthians as a church and they are called. That's really the dominant word I want to leave you with because it's all over the New Testament. If you're part of a church, if you're part of the body of Christ, if you belong to Christ, you have this calling, ecclesia, out of the world. And you need to wear that as your, your, your identity and let it be defining. The New Testament uses that phrase. When Paul wrote to Romans, for instance, and, and started that letter, in Romans 1 verse 7, he said to all those in Rome... That's another big city that we're not going to talk about. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In Galatians chapter 5 verse 13, Paul says this in the midst of an argument about living certain lifestyles. You were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. In Ephesians 4, verse 1, that chapter that talks about the local church and all the gifts Christ gives. We talked about it in Sunday school when we covered Christ builds his church. Ephesians 4, verse 1, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Paul's putting his cards on the table. If you're a Christian, it doesn't just mean you get out of hell free and you live for yourself. No, you, you've been called. You've been drafted you've been enlisted your citizenship is now in heaven and there are consequences for that two more references on calling in church 
Paul writes to Timothy, 1 Timothy 6, 12, fight the good fight of faith. We love that. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. There's a purpose in our walk of faith, in our fight of faith. It's our calling. Our calling out of the world, into the kingdom, into the service of Christ, to be at his disposal, to be fruitful in our Christian living. And finally, 2 Timothy 1.9, Paul reminds him at the opening of that letter to that young pastor that God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Our calling is a holy calling. That's the way Paul thinks of this word, church, and called out ones. And he writes to the called out ones of God that, is, that are in Corinth with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia. So the church and saints are put in parallel. Let me pause here because some of you have heard about Corinth, the, the Las Vegas of the ancient world, the New York City, the L.A., the Hollywood of the ancient world, cosmopolitan, wealthy, lots of people from out of town, lots of tourists and travelers and, and people wanting to get rich quick. It was, one, one man compared it to major U.S. cities in the 1800s out west. A sense of adventure, not quite lawlessness, but get rich quick, uh, you know, adventurists. Corinth was so viewed in that way that ancient writers used to describe immoral people as being Corinthian or to Corinthianize. Someone was to behave immorally. It became a buzzword. Nevertheless, Paul says there are saints in Corinth. And we have to understand the meaning of the word saints is not what the Roman Catholic Church wants you to, to th view it as. It doesn't mean someone who's arrived at some level of perfection above and beyond us all. Whenever the Bible talks about saints, it's talking about normal Christian believers. Yes, even those in Corinth who needed all this correction. To be a Christian is to be, in the Bible's eyes, a saint. Well, what does saint mean then? You should know. To be a saint means to be a holy one. To be one who is being sanctified. There are troubles in Corinth, but they were still being sanctified. As they were called to follow Christ, they were still working on those things. And there was progress but there was more work to be done. If you remember how 1 Corinthians began, Paul spelled that out even more clearly. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 in his address to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Interesting, when he first wrote to them that sanctified was in the past tense. Uh, that was a pretty bold blessing to say, hey, you're holy people. You, you might feel awkward if I came up to you after the service and said, you're sanctified. And you would say, oh, pastor, if you only knew. What Paul is saying to the Corinthians and to us 
to be in Christ is to be as good as glorified. Those whom he justified, he is sanctifying and he will sanctify and he will glorify. We're told that in Romans 8, that great golden chain of our salvation. So Paul can write with confidence that it's as good as done because of who Christ is. Here in 2 Corinthians, there's still the sanctification work to be going. So he just calls them um, in parallel with all the saints in the region, in the province. To be a Christian is one who pursues holiness. Well, this is the church, the church in Corinth, and we'll see what kind of work needs to be done in the weeks ahead. But let me, before we move on from this middle point, let me just ask, what about Christians today? What about Christians today? Are there any parallels? Yes, there are lots of parallels with what's going on in Corinth. Two parallels, I'll just point out. Christians today, as in the day Paul wrote to the Corinthians, are under the same authority. We're under the same authority. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, if God sends you a letter, you're under its authority. Whether you lived 2,000 years ago in a, a Mediterranean city called Corinth or whether you live in Clifton Park, New York or nearby, we're under the same authority. And that'll be important. We don't have the same super apostles and, and contenders with Paul that Corinth had, but... There are plenty of contenders in our day for your esteem and your allegiance. And we have to be very careful to remain under the authority of the word of God and not just pick our friends because of one influential friends and not just pick our enemies because of one influential friend labeling them such. And these are days of great change and we need to see what are the marks of true biblical ministry. Who do I know how, who to follow? This letter will help us understand that. Paul Barnett, writing in the Bible Speaks Today commentary, said that New Testament ministry is not established by letters of recommendation, which Paul will engage, or by would-be ministers and their mystical or miraculous powers, but it is established by one's faithfulness in persuading and his effectiveness in converting people to the Christian faith. It's not the flash and bang. It's the power of the gospel. So Christians today are under the same authority and we have the same calling to holiness. We don't often refer to one another as saints. How are you doing today, saint? Maybe we should a little bit more to remind us of our upward calling. The New Testament has dozens of verses reminding us of our calling. You can't escape that. It's a real priority of the Bible. Your calling. I referenced recently the, <clears throat> I think it was in Sunday school. Uh, parents, uh, what you can tell your children when they're asked, oh, hello, little boy, hello, little girl, what do you want to be when you grow up? You, you've heard me talk about this. First of all, I have a problem with the question because it's what do you want to be? The asker typically says, what job do you want? Do you want to be a fireman or a nurse or an artist? 
But they say, what do you want to be? So we should teach our children and we should have an answer that, that's specific. So I indoctrinated, indoctrinated all the Bissett children to answer, I want to be a godly man. I want to be a godly woman. To tell our children what God's calling upon our lives is. That's what we should be, whether we're a nurse or a fireman or whatever. Christians today have the same calling to follow Christ in the midst of a broken, tumultuous world. Mid toil and tribulation and tumult over war. We wait the consummation, but it's not a passive waiting. We follow Christ and walk in newness of life. Same authority, same calling. Well, let's look briefly at some benefits that Paul mentions. Some people call verse 2 a prayer. Some people call it a blessing. Uh, some people simply treat it as a salutation. And that's what it is in function, a salutation. It's at the beginning of a letter. It's, it's, it's part of a greeting. And it is prayerful. And it is a blessing. But it's so much more. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Precious Precious words. And it is interesting here. We can smile because Paul's pulling a little wordplay when Paul writes his letters. He takes the common Greek word for hello, karain, and he changes it to charis, grace. So I, I can almost see him with a little twinkle in his eye as he writes or the scribe writes, grace, not just hello. So in Greek, that's funny. That's okay. It's good. It's a good thing because Paul's already taking their expectation. Here's a letter and he's raising it to look at things above. The very thing he commands us to do. He wishes grace to fellow believers. He prays for grace. He prays that our eyes might be open to this amazing grace. The greatest Christians you know. Those who have the most stability in their faith and in their walk with the Lord, they know something of the grace of God. It is not in their own strength that they arrive there. They're a trophy of God's grace. The great verses in Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, which talk about you've been saved by grace and not by works. It's a gift of God, lest any man should boast. Go on to tell us that we are his workmanship. And go on to tell us that Christ did this work. To showcase his glory in being gracious to us. We are the trophies of God's grace. He says it to believers up front in a challenging letter. Some people in Corinth didn't like Paul. Some people disliked him greatly and hurt him. He wasn't popular. But he writes nevertheless to them and wishes God's grace be upon them. And you know what? It's because Paul knew the limits of what he could accomplish in their midst, that if they're going to be changed, if they're going to grow, it's by the grace of God upon them. This reference is not only to saving grace, but to securing and sanctifying grace, the favor of God upon his people now and forever. And it's closely followed by the word peace. Grace to you and peace. 
And it, it, it seems appropriate, that the order that peace follows the grace of God when we're forgiven, that we're also reconciled to God. And this reference to peace doesn't mean you don't have trouble at work, trouble at home, trouble with your neighbor, trouble with your kids, trouble with your parents. Life is bumpy, especially in a broken world, and even for Christians. But Paul is wishing them inner well-being. This is the peace of well-being from resting in the grace of God. If you're having a bad day, you don't need to turn to the bottle or some other distraction. Look at the grace of God to you. Understand that you're reconciled, that you're his. You've not only been forgiven, you've been adopted and loved. He calls you children. He's got a place for you, a room with your name on it at home. What can this world do? Paul, by grace, could say to live is Christ, to die is gain. My friends, we will need a focus and a fierce grip on grace and peace that is ours through Christ Jesus in the days ahead. Whether God is merciful to America or not, whether cultural unraveling continues or not, whether revival comes and a whole new age of gospel advance comes in our lifetime or not, grace is ours in peace through the Lord Jesus Christ. And if we have peace, let's just remind you, uh, if you're reconciled with God and at peace with him, you can ask him for things. You can pray. Prayer is here hinted at. And there's even more. Grace to you and peace, but that's not it. Those are two things, but I, I, I think there's more because Paul doesn't just sign off there. Sign Paul. What does he do? He goes on to verse 3, and he goes on to chapter 2, and he goes on through the whole letter. He attaches a whole letter to that prayer request. He attaches a whole letter to that pronouncement of blessing. So the three blessings here, grace and peace, but the third one is the whole letter itself. God gives us his word. We do well to remember that when Jesus was wrapping up his physical ministry on the earth, he was talking to his disciples and he said things they thought were crazy. He said, for instance, in the Gospel of John, it's good that I go away. Well, you're our, our Lord. We, we want you to be with us. No, it's good that I go away so I can send you the Holy Spirit, the Comforter. He further explained in John 16, beginning of verse 12, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth and he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. The Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the first sent one of God would send his Holy Spirit into the world and with the help of the Holy Spirit, send apostles into the world to bring about the, the kingdom, to the writing of his word, giving more truth and light to his people. The Lord Jesus Christ still spoke by sending his spirit and the composition of the New Testament, which is now complete, and the authority of these apostles. It's a gift and blessing to the church. What am I saying? 
I'm saying this, we have the very word of God. We have grace from God, we experience peace with God, and we have the word of God. Not just this letter, but all 66 books. And they're translated into our own language, and we all have copies. If you don't have a copy, we'll give you a copy. And we can read the mind of God. We can understand ourselves. One reason I say read your Bible every day, open it up. And I I still prefer paper Bibles because there's less notices. I I don't usually get lights that show up here and distract me to go to other apps. Read the Bible every day. It not only is a window to the person and character and promises of God, but the the Bible is a mirror. It, It knows what I look like and it wants me to change. When you stop reading this book, you stop thinking about God. When you stop reading this book, you stop growing more and more Christ-like. We're not legalistic about a chapter a day and what time of day, but it is our duty and our delight and privilege to read God's word regularly and to meditate upon it and to hide it in our hearts. Let me make three observations as we close, three exhortations, three applications. The first is going back to how we have an Apostle Paul who used to be a Saul of Tarsus. The gift of spiritual life brings us membership in God's family, membership in God's kingdom. The gift of spiritual life, the new birth, the gift of life in Christ Jesus brings you into God's family. That's how Saul was turned from an enemy, an opposer of Christianity, to one who would promote and proclaim it and give his life for it. That not only explains Saul of Tarsus, but explains Timothy. And you can read in, in Paul's letter to Timothy, he said, hey, Timothy, you know how this all happened, how your grandmother and your mother shared with you the word of God, which is able to make you wise unto salvation. Timothy, you've got that godly heritage. And through God's spiritual gifts, he brings spiritual life. And that's why you're part of this kingdom work, Timothy. Explains Paul, it explains Timothy, it explains those Corinthians. If you understand the city of Corinth, it had been something great under the Greeks, it had fallen into disrepair and ruin for over 100 years. And just before the birth of Christ, around 40 or 50 uh, B.C., the Romans planted a new colony on the city of Rome. Rome, excuse me, on the city of Corinth. Corinth was reborn and grew rapidly. And it kind of looked like that city of Oz, that gleaming new thing. Everybody wanted a piece of that. But it, Romans didn't plant a church there. Their focus was on wealth and power, rhetoric and honor and social status and commerce and getting wealthy. But God gave the gift of spiritual life to some in Corinth through the preaching of the gospel. In that place that the world had rebuilt to the fourth most significant city in the whole Roman Empire, in the midst of that, God built a church. Ecclesia called people out of that to himself and gave them membership. So that's how Paul can write to them as a church. He can call them saints. Recognize that this is God's work. Take care that you belong in the right way. You belong not just by your busyness, 
but it has to be a spiritual gift of God, the new birth. And if you belong, love your brothers. Love your sisters in Christ. Second application in closing, that the goal for church, the goal for ministry, in part is conformity to the word of God. The goal is to hear and heed the word of God. Hear and heed the word of God. Do you remember what we mentioned at the beginning, what 2 Corinthians was about, the pastoral strategy of Paul? Paul was seeking to draw a wandering congregation close, close to their apostle and his mission, and close to the true gospel and closer to Christ. One of the goals of church, one of the goals of my ministry, and it should be of your ministry, is to make God's word known and have all of us rally around it, to grow up in it. That's why the, God, the Lord gave uh, uh, teachers and pastors to the church, so that we would learn and not be like children tossed to and fro, that we would learn and grow and be fruitful. It's interesting, uh, the theologian Douglas Kelly has a collection of essays and expositions on 2 Corinthians, very brief, but very erudite and piercing. And one of the things he said, and this was written a decade or two ago, struck me as happening in our day. He made the observation, quoting someone else, there are only two alternatives in the intellectual life. Either one conforms conforms your desires to the truth, or one conforms the truth to your desires. As you learn what is true, it will either change your desires, or as you learn, if you love your desires, if you idolize your desires, you hedge on the truth, and the truth has to give. When Paul writes to these Corinthians, he's putting truth in front of them. He addressed their sexual immorality and said, this is the way it's got to be. And they had to change. He addressed the the false teachers and other misconceptions that were in their midst and said, this is the truth. This is the way it needs to be. If you're a Christian and reading your Bible, that's the way it needs to be. Conformity to the word of God. Don't conform to the culture and dance to their beat. But keep in step with the Spirit, the Spirit who inspired the Word of God and gave us the Word of God. Finally, just a reminder, Paul mentions grace and peace, not just for the Corinthians, but for us. It's really our greatest need. It's our greatest need, and it's the greatest gift of God in Christ to give us grace and peace. We could sing, it is well with my soul. We can sing on Christ, the solid rock, I stand, all of the ground is sinking stand because of God's grace, amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Grace and peace. Think on these things. Treasure that fact that God has given us grace and peace through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit who gives us understanding of your word. And Father, we thank you as we embark on the study of 2 Corinthians, that you've raised our our perception of its importance and how it will be relative to our lives. May we take the word today about authority, about calling, about grace and peace, 
and ponder these things in our hearts and praise you for them. May we conform to your word. May we be fruitful because of your word. And may we rest in the peace that comes from having grace through Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.